Good morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. <clears throat> in the Bibles that we've provided you kids or you've grabbed from the back table can be found on page 894. We're going to be in verses 12 through 30. While you're turning there, I don't know about y'all, but I was encouraged by the confession of faith this morning um, and uh, that communion we have with Christ ever we, after we die and that line that just really struck me this morning as I read this was in rest in their graves as in their beds reminded that um, death is a comfort to the righteous, death is a refuge to the righteous. And so it's an encouraging thing to think of um, um, as we read that death is a gift to the believer so that we're no longer bound in sin and death, but we're able to embrace, we're able to see the Lord Jesus and, and uh, God the Father as they truly are. And uh, so it's just an encouraging thing to me. And I pray that as we read this passage, that um, as we think of Jesus as the light of the world, that um, that our eyes would be opened and that we would uh, see the glory of God uh, on display through his word. So thank you for that. Let's begin reading in John 8, verse 12. This is God's word. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is I, not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasure as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So he said to them again, I'm going away and you will seek me uh, and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Where I'm going, you cannot come. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe in that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, who are you? And Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, 
and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. This is God's word. So the first thing we see in verse 12, that Jesus is the light of the world. This is, a, this is an amazing statement we have, but as Pastor Larry led us through um, that um, prayer of adoration, I think it's helpful for us to consider the biblical context that we, that we have when Jesus says that he is the light of the world. So if we go back to the very beginning in Genesis 1, 1, 1 in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day. In the darkness, he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. Now, certainly we know that Jesus was present at creation. Last week when we recited the Nicene Creed, we recited that Jesus is being one with the Father and through him all things were made, which is all of creation. And so we, if we look at, even if we look at the beginning of John's gospel, if we look um, up at John 1, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. So if Jesus is identifying with light, he isn't saying that he was created like light is created. But like light, Jesus informs. Jesus gives meaning. Jesus illuminates. Jesus overcomes darkness the way that light overcomes darkness. We also see from the very beginning that that, um, uh, light is good and and darkness is bad by, by, um, um, by consequence. There aren't many kinds of light. There's only one kind of light. Every other kind of light is manufactured. It's, it borrows from it. It faintly mimics the true light, the light of day. When we think of the light of the world, we all have this one light in common. We all have the same source of light. We all have the same sun. India doesn't have their sun. Australia doesn't have their sun. America doesn't have its sun. We all have one sun, and it's the sun that shone in the first morning of all creation. And that shone on these people in the first century of Palestine, in first century Palestine. And that same sun shines on us 2,000 years later here this morning. And so Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the light from the beginning of creation to this day here. And then Jesus links light with life there at the end of verse 12. But we'll have the light of life. Light is essential for life. One quick Google search will bring up this quote at the very top of the page. Light is the essence of light itself, life itself. Without light, we simply would have nothing. 
Light is the main source of energy for all living organisms. Plants, the main sustainers of life, are crucial in this conversion process and need light for photosynthesis that enables them to make their own food and food for others. If you don't have light, you don't have life. And so Jesus is saying, as the light, I am essential to life. But as we have seen in our study of Jesus's I am statements, Specifically last week when Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. When we talk about life, we aren't just talking about the paltry decades that we live here on this earth. No, it's the beginning. Jesus says, I am life and the light of life is the eternal life. It's, so when Jesus says life, he's talking from, the, from this point throughout, the, throughout all time. If we just flip back one page in the Gospel of John, when you look at the heading 660, the words of eternal life, Jesus is talking about eternal life. Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. If you look over at 737, Jesus is like, I am the living water. I am the rivers of living water. And so Jesus is saying, I am the source not only of life, but I am the source of of eternal life. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so eternal life isn't just when you die, but even now. Like the, um, it's a, it's a, from this point forth forevermore. Now we can be led to think, well, if Jesus is like the sun, it shines on everything, then Jesus gives eternal life to all. Everyone who receives, um, everyone receives the benefit of what he offers. In one aspect, this is true. God causes his light and his rain to fall on the wicked and the just. This reveals the graciousness of God and that he lovingly provides for the most faithful believer in the world and the most heinous rebel who shakes his fist, openly mocking the Lord. However, Jesus says that this light that gives eternal life doesn't shine on everyone. No, you must follow him. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Now, there are implications for this audience that is hearing this, and there are implications for us today when we think of this. The first is explicit in Jesus' remarks. If you follow Jesus, if you follow the light, you will not walk in darkness. This is a promise. Following light will not, will me, means that you're not in darkness. It's intuitive, right? Also, the opposite is true. Therefore, if you're not following in the light, then you are in darkness. There isn't another light. For believers, this is important for us to consider as well in 1 John 1, 6, when John says, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So following Jesus isn't something that happens one time and we go, yeah, I followed Jesus, I'm a Christian. No, following Jesus is a continuous following. This is why we, we value relationships in the church. This is why we try to hold each other accountable. This is why we practice church discipline. So that when we're, what we're saying is you are not following Jesus in the light if you're walking in darkness. Repent and return to the light. 
Now, as Christians, this doesn't mean that we won't be called to enter into dark places, you know, because Jesus is with us. We have the light of Christ. We can be encouraged that darkness will not overcome it. But as we follow Jesus, the light shines in our lives and it produces three effects in us. One of the effects that it produces in us as we walk in the light is it makes us aware, sensitive toward light and darkness. We don't like darkness. We don't want to have anything to do with it. We're suspicious of darkness. We become sensitive to it and we flee from it. We become sensitive to the ignorance of and the ambivalence toward um, in opposition to God. We find discomfort in the areas of darkness that the world runs toward. Secondly, we can also be fooled because um, we uh, formerly are people who made their home in darkness. And so we can, we can be fooled to think that darkness is light. But continuing to walk in light exposes those areas of our life that are offensive to God, exposes dark areas of our life that we uh, just read, that Pastor Tim just read in our um, uh, New Testament reading. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you're children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the foolish works of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. The third effect that walking in the light has on us is that it changes our countenance. It changes our perspective. It changes how others view us. Psalm 34, 5, Those who look to him are radiant in their faces, shall never be ashamed. This becomes a great testimony for us. We can't lie about it. Just as Moses couldn't deny that he had been with the Lord up on Mount Sinai, this happens to us as well. Paul calls it the light of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 3.18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Do radiant faces characterize us? Do our lives give evidence of us walking in the light? Do our jokes and our words give evidences of, walking, of us walking in the light or lingering in the shadows? Do our judgments and our attitudes in our workplaces and around our dinner tables Reveal that we're looking to the radiant light of Christ? Or are we, like Paul warned, looking into the law and a list of things that we have done that causes the light in our heart and our faces to fade over time? Our light gives testimony to the light of Christ. 
Paul says down in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. However, in verses 13 through 20, we see that the world is blinded to the light of the Lord of the world. The world is blinded to the light of the world. Who has blinded them? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The depth and the extent of blindness is astonishing to us if we think about it. Even those who are looking for the Messiah, like these rulers here, the leaders of Israel have their hearts and their minds blinded from seeing the light of the gospel. John 1.11 says, The light of the world came to his own, and the people, his own people did not receive him. These men here hear Jesus saying, I'm the light of the world, and they immediately say, Who says that you're the light of the world? Later on in verse 25, they'll say, Give us proof. Who are you? They say, your testimony isn't true. You testify about yourself. Well, who is going to be a suitable witness that Jesus is the Christ? Who can testify to that? Over the last few weeks, we've read of the man born blind who testified that Jesus is the Christ. And he's kicked out of the synagogue for it. Signs won't do it. Last week we read that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, proving that he is the resurrection and the life. And they not only want to kill Jesus, but they wanted to destroy the proof of Lazarus himself. Jesus tells them that he has two witnesses, me and my father. And if you knew my father, you would know God the son. I mentioned earlier that uh, about the biblical context of our passage here as it relates to Genesis and the first of the Gospel of John. But let's look at it even in relation to this section of John. What's going on here? If you flip over to John 7, 1, just the page before, you see that this is the Feast of Booths. This is the Feast of Booths that's happening. John's brothers Say, hey, man, in Jerusalem, they got the Feast of the Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles going on. You ought to go up there and do some signs and wonders and make people believe in you. And he's, they're joking with him. They're mocking him. Jesus isn't goaded to going up right then, but he will go up a little later on in the middle of the feast. And the Feast of Booths was instituted by the Lord to remind Israel of how the Lord protected them in their wilderness wanderings. The 40 years that they were in the wilderness, this is what the Feast of Booze is about. Remember how God provided for you in the wilderness? They're to live in booths or huts for a week to remember what the Lord did for them, lest they forget God's good care and promises to them. After all, he brought them into a good land. You can, he can take you out of it. And the two aspects of that Feast of Booze that were Important were one, well, there were several that were important, but two big signs where the priests were pouring out water at the base of the altar to remind Israel of all those times that the Lord miraculously provided them water in the wilderness. Specifically on those two occasions from the rock, once when Moses speaks to the rock and water gushes forth, providing for all of Israel. 
And then when Moses sinned and struck the rock and the water came out so that they could slake the thirst of the people. The other aspect of the Feast of Booze was illuminating uh, or lighting the large menorah or candelabra that was lit in the court of nations. And it signified the pillar of light or fire that led Israel and protected them those 40 years in the wilderness. That would lead... That would lead them in that in that feast to do something like we may do on Christmas Eve, where you know you have a service and you're passing the candle, and all of a sudden the whole place is illuminated. And so, if you look out on the temple during the Feast of Booze, it's just this gigantic light that's just that's just standing there by itself because it's all illuminated. The people of Israel have all been illuminated by this light. And this whole exchange between Jesus and the Pharisees happens during the, temp- the Feast of Booths in the temple. In 7, 1 through 39, this is all during the feast. Verses 40 through 52, that's an aside. That's the Pharisees talking amongst themselves. They're, so the scene hasn't changed. And then in verses 8, 1 through 11, it's widely held that that section that passage doesn't even belong there it's not even um, part of the gospel of john and so we began 8 12 we're still at the feast of booths we're still at the feast of booths in the temple so what is jesus saying he said you want to see a sign the water that poured forth from the rock John 7, 37, I am the living water. I am the water that came from the rock. You want to see a sign? That fire that led you for your forefathers in the wilderness? I am that light. I am the light. I'm the very light you're celebrating tonight in this feast. Oh, and that bread that you had every day? I'm the bread of life. You want a sign? The Lord has given you a sign. You've seen my miracles. You've heard my words. You've celebrated my feast that point to me, and yet you still do not believe. You do not believe because you know neither me nor my Father. It's interesting in this section that the topic of judgment comes up. We're familiar with Jesus' words. I came not to condemn the world, but to save it. And so Jesus says here in verse 15, you're judging me, you judge uh, according to the flesh, I judge no one. But don't take my refusal to judge you right now as me saying that you are right or as me saying that it's no big deal. My time for judgment hasn't come yet, but make no mistake, there is a judgment taking place right here. We read the, uh, we read the opening verses of Genesis and and. God said there is a separation between light and darkness. There is a difference there. And these people who treat the news of Jesus as being light, uh, as the light of the world, laughingly or thinking that it's foolish, there is a separation, there is a judgment taking place. Think about how Israel followed the light in the wilderness. We read that passage a couple of weeks ago from Numbers. When, when When the cloud descended over the camp, they stopped. And then when the cloud lifted, they took off. And then the light led them at night through, through the wilderness. 
What would the situation be for a person of Israel if they said, yeah, you know what, y'all go do your thing. I'll meet you over there. I'm not going to follow the light. I'm going to just be on my own. It's okay. I'll hook up with you later. Well, you're no longer counted among the people of God. You're in danger. You're in darkness. You're in the elements. You have no provision. Manna doesn't fall for you. Water doesn't come from rocks for you. Refusing to follow the light leads to judgment pretty quickly upon you. If you aren't fully, uh, if you aren't following or walking in the light, judgment has started. Judgment has started already. But there is hope. Because in verses 21 through 30, we see that light entered into the darkness so that you may be saved. Light entered into the darkness so that you may be saved. Darkness is opposed to light, which makes sense, right? Darkness and light are a zero something. If one exists, then the other doesn't. If there's light, there's no darkness. If there's darkness, there's no light. Consequently, if you follow the light, if you're not following the light, you're a child of darkness. And so Jesus is opposed by those who believe that they are worshiping God and instead are in darkness. Verse 20 says, um, uh, no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So when we think about it, no one had arrested him for his hour had not yet come. This is somewhat odd when we read, when we read at the first of John where it says lightness, light has come into the world and darkness has not overcome it. So if Jesus is to be arrested, well, then it seems like that darkness is overcoming the light, that the light is about to be extinguished. And Jesus begins verse 21 by insinuating that this judgment that is taking place right now, this separation between light and darkness is not just here, but it is an eternal separation. It will be evident. It will be crystal clear very soon that this separation is an eternal separation. So when he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. Where I'm going, you cannot come. And immediately the, the, the leaders go, what's he talking about? Where I'm going, I cannot come. He must be talking about death, but we're, no, we're going to be resurrected. So is he going to kill himself? Is he going to commit suicide? Because it was thought amongst the Jews that if you committed suicide, there was no hope of resurrection for you. As a matter of fact, they said that you shouldn't even have a funeral for someone who committed suicide because there was just beyond hope. And so they're like, we must be going to do that because any other way we're resurrected. But Jesus shows them that they're upside down and they're thinking, no, I'm not the one who's, <laughs> who's going to be eternally damned. You are. You are from below, meaning this world. I am from, I'm from above. I am from heaven. And so where I am going, you cannot come. This gives evidence of the leader's citizenship in the world because they, they, um, Jesus is telling them spiritual things, but they, they, lack, um, they lack spiritual knowledge. They, they lack spiritual understanding. And so they keep asking these worldly questions. Well, who are you? And then, you know, and, and where is your father? Where are you going? You know, and I mean, all of these questions they're trying to answer with worldly means. 
You can't do that. There is no human or earthly credibility great enough to confirm a heavenly reality unless heaven came to earth and revealed himself to you, which it has. The light came to earth to reveal himself to the world. And it brings a judgment, but these people aren't worried about it because they don't believe this is... They don't believe that this is a that this man is from God. They think he's crazy or he's radical. But he is the Lord. He is the Messiah. And if you can't go where he's going, then you're in trouble. There is no payment for sins for you. You suffer judgment. Verse 24. I told you you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. And so again, who are you? Jesus says, I've shown you who I am through my actions, through my words, through my signs. I've pointed, you, I've pointed myself out to you in your heritage and your, through your religious practices, and you're blind to it. But Jesus hints at something remarkable in verse 28. He says, but you will know. You will know that I am he when I am lifted up. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, for I do, then I, that I do nothing on my own authority but speak just as the Father has taught me. Jesus spent his earthly ministry showing that he is the Lord who is to come and the world largely did not believe it. And he pointed out their sin to the world and they couldn't stand it. They mocked him or they justified themselves or they trivialized it or they tried to cover it up with their own religious good. But Jesus went a step further and said, my words are true and my judgment for your sin is real and it is total and it will be meted out. But then Jesus entered into the punishment for us. Jesus entered into the judgment on our behalf, entered into the punishment of that eternal sin on behalf of anyone who would ever turn from their sin and trust in Christ. Jesus says in verse 28, you know that I am he when you have lifted up the Son of Man, referring to his crucifixion. But even at his crucifixion, they didn't recognize him. As a matter of fact, at the crucifixion, they said, if you'll come down, if you'll save yourself and come down, we'll believe that you're the Son of Man. We'll believe that you are who you say you are. But he's there for their unbelief. He's paying an eternal penalty for their mocking. And as he is on the cross paying that penalty, all of Jerusalem goes dark. It is completely dark. Luke 23, 45 says the sun's light failed. It's complete darkness for three hours. It seems that darkness has overcome the light. Jesus is laid in the tomb and it seems that once again, that Jesus isn't truthful. For he's dead, never mind the fact that Jesus had told his disciples or, or, and told all who would listen, if you destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. But then on the third day, at first light, the stone is rolled away and the tomb is empty. And the Son of Man has once again been lifted up, lifted up from the grave, which confirmed that he was pleasing to his father, which confirmed that he is who he said he was which confirmed that the penalty for sin had been paid if they would only believe. And 40 days later, Jesus is lifted up again when he has ascended into heaven where he seats at the Father. And the angels appeared to him 
to the disciples and say, why do you keep looking into the sky? He will come again the same way that he went up. And so that's what we're looking for. That's what we're hoping in. That's what all of those who walk in the light are longing for when he returns. It's very encouraging for me to read verse 30. As Jesus was saying these things, many believed in him. They had heard enough. They didn't need to see it. They didn't need to, um, they didn't need to have earthly witnesses. You don't have to have light explained to you. You know light when you see light. You don't have to have light verified. It doesn't need to be second. It, it doesn't need to be confirmed. You know it. Where are you this Lord's day? Are you following the light? Are you dabbling in the shadows? Are you waiting for further verification before you make a decision? What proof would do it for you? What are you trusting in? Really, what are you trusting in? What comfort do you have for eternal life? Is your comfort that eternal life doesn't exist? That this life is all there is and when you die you just rot in the ground and that's it? Is that the comfort you have? That all of this is a lie? Jesus said, where I'm going, you cannot go. Unless you believe in me, you will die in your sins. There isn't a plan B. Are you following the light? If not, you are in darkness. Calling you to trust in Christ is not calling you to take a leap of faith into the darkness. It's calling you to take a step out of darkness and into the life, light and life of the one who calls. That comfort that you find in sin today, that comfort you find in a laissez-faire attitude, ah, you do you, I'll do me. The comfort you find in finding your own truth or living for today or just do no harm. The comfort that you find in the morality of Twitter or Snapchat or Facebook or Fox News or wherever, it's darkness. None of that will matter at all when you gasp your last breath. Yesterday we celebrated the light of the world coming to his own. We love that part. We love the light coming down to give light to men. But the minute you mention that light entered into the, depth, the dark death for you so that you may have life, all of a sudden, that's an offensive message to the world. Because we are, the gospel is the aroma of death to those who are perishing. God has graciously given you a glimmer of light of the light of the world this morning. As Jesus says in verse 21, I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sins. Where I'm going, you cannot come. There will come a time when you will seek a savior. You'll seek some sort of salvation because you'll realize that what you have banked on is failing. But this is a gift right before your eyes this morning. And Jesus tells them, look, I'm about to go away and you're going to seek after me. And you're not going to find me. But I'm right here before you this morning. Turn to me before it's, not, uh, before it's too late. The same is true for you today. 
It is a gift at this time of the world, at this time of the year, to be thinking about the light of the world. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon him. That's not an invitation to jump into darkness, but to enter into the life and the light and to find his warmth on your face. This is an invitation to come where Jesus is and promise that he will abundantly pardon and warmly welcome. This is the light of the gospel. Will you follow it? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would reveal the areas of our life that we are finding or seeking our own comfort or security in. Father, we pray that we would see that as what it really is, which is darkness. That we would stop longing for it, but that we would turn and that you would lift our faces to you. And we would find our hope and our joy and our contentment and our meaning in life in you. Lord, you are a good God and we thank you for graciously revealing yourself to us. May you use this passage, Lord, to refine our eyesight and that you would compel us, Lord, to encourage one another to, to think on you and to see you for who you are. And Lord, that you would be pleased to use us as a reflection of your glory to a dark world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.